This episode is brought to you by the Body Shop's Youth Activist Series. All those moments are just really, for want of a better term, seizing that opportunity. If there is someone in front of you, introduce yourself. The worst they can do is look at you and like say no. For me, the magic source of success in any field actually is to be the smartest person in the room, but also the kindest person in the room. You know, unless I have a boundary, unless I can fill my tank first, I'm not going to be able to fill anyone's tank. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. You all know one of the main facets of the CZA philosophy is separating what you do from who you are. But naturally, our conversations still sometimes touch on the doing because work is often inextricably related with finding your overall purpose or passion in life. Today's guest, however, has faced perhaps more upheaval in relation to the being, not so much in finding what you love, but in finding who you are. Growing up as a Jehovah's Witness to hardworking immigrant parents in regional Victoria, Denny Todorovic's environment didn't exactly foster the language or conversations that allowed them to fully articulate their identity until almost their 20s. But having come out not once, but twice since then, along with all the torment and confusion that accompanies such big shifts in identity, Denny is now living their absolute best life as a non-binary role model, encouraging us all to honour who we are as well as gently and patiently helping us learn more about the language and landscape of gender identity and sexuality. For someone who began their life feeling like they didn't have the language to express what they really felt, Denny is now one of the most eloquent and articulate guests I've had the pleasure of speaking with, sharing so openly about even the most awkward elements of gender fluidity, i.e. we learn how they pick which bathrooms to use. Sexuality aside, Denny has also had an incredible path, yay, working their way from a shit-kicking intern all the way up to fashion editor at Cosmopolitan magazine, right up until its closure in 2018. Their insights are equally as powerful in dealing with the unexpected loss of dreams, embracing a giant pivot to move back to Geelong and embrace the freelance world wholeheartedly, including becoming the face of the Body Shop's incredible self-love campaign, a company you know I adore working with. Their energy and passion for equality and kindness is so infectious and energizing, and the gold sparkles I turned up to record in barely do Denny justice. I hope that Denny brings your heart the warmth that mine was filled with the whole way through. Denny Todorovic, welcome to Seize the Yay. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I am so excited. I was literally just saying before we started recording that we have been at Poof Doof together we before. <laughs> we didn't meet properly, but we're best internet friends to we the point are. where I've even turned up today in gold sparkles in your honour. Yes. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I'm such a big admirer and it's a real honour to have you on the show today. Oh, right back at you. I think it's so 
we're in such a unique time at the moment because of lockdown that our digital, you know, admirations and friendships, they feel so visceral because it's all we have at the moment. So I've made some of my best friends over the last two years in lockdown that I've not even had a chance to actually hang out with properly IRL. So yeah, the love is very mutual, my darling. Oh, you are the sweetest. And I love that you use the word Mm. visceral. I feel like I just want to give you a hug, but I don't know what that actually feels like, but I feel like I miss it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we jump into your pathier, as I call Mm. it, I love to start by asking everyone what the most down to earth thing is about them to break through what is really often a quite glossy kind of surface level identity is perceived through the media or social media. And you have such a, an incredible story. I mean, very hugely coveted positions to your name. You are such a great pillar of society that, you know, we all admire you so much. So it can be very easy to forget that you're Mm. a normal human who Mm. like takes out the bins and like has, Mm -hmm. I love your beautiful mom. She's the absolute (laughs) greatest. You know, what is something just really normal about you? I think that's firstly, thank you. That's incredibly flattering. I think it's really interesting that you bring this up because we were just talking about this at dinner last night, my parents and I. I was talking about Kim Kardashian and her SNL performance or hosting <laughs> her hosting gig. And I said, the thing that I love most about Kim is that, you know, she's the most famous woman in the world, yet the girl's just a down-to-earth, sweet valley girl from Calabasas, like still is to this day, and I've followed her <laughs> since season one. And I think that's why people like her. And then we were kind of talking about what can happen when you get sort of thrust into the public arena. First and foremost, I do not consider myself in that vein whatsoever. Like someone messaged me on Instagram the other day and said, you should be on I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here. And I was like, why would I be on that show? I'm not a celebrity. (laughs) (laughs) I'm certainly aware of like people's perceptions maybe of where I sit in that arena of, you know, digital creators. But I'm just Denny from Geelong. And I really mean that. Like it's literally just, for me, I will always just be you know, a little ethnic kid from G-Town who went to a public (laughs) school, you know, the son of two migrant parents. My mum still yells at me when I don't make my bed properly. Like it's very normal in this house. My parents do not treat me like I should be on I'm a Celebrity. And I don't think of myself as that way. And I think that on a perhaps a bit more of a deeper sort of more spiritual level, I think whenever our life is dictated by our ego voice, that's when shit gets really dangerous. And that's when people get just too big for their boots and that they forget who they are and they forget their roots. So for me, I always at all costs, anytime I get a smidgy of ego voice, I'm like, see you later, honey. We don't need you here. <laughs> I think that's another reason why people are so drawn to you is you're such an amazing role model for so many important messages of identity and self-love and acceptance, but also you've grown such a huge audience, but stay just Denny from G-Town. And, you know, you spend so much time with your beautiful family and even watching your incredible dancing videos, they just make <laughs> my life. And I'm like a big hip hop dancer. So yes. I just like, get so excited but I also love that your bins are in line along the fence in the background I'm like yes yes Denny well I mean do you know like that's so funny that you should notice that because the bins and the green plastic chair are the they're the MVPs of those videos and I remember when I first started making them someone said to me why don't you tidy up the background a bit more and I was like but why would I like (laughs) I'm not JLo this is not a you know this is not a VMA performance I'm just dancing in my backyard so yeah we like I said we keep it real here 
I don't take the bins out. My dad does, and he always gets cranky at me because of my acrylic nails. I'm like, sorry, dad, I can't take the bins out. But, no. you know, we keep it real here. We keep it very real in this house. <laughs> and that's why, like, it's such a weird question. People find it quite jarring at the beginning. Like, how do you even describe what's down to earth about you? But I also mm. love starting with it because then, mm-hmm. like, everything else that comes afterwards, people walk into your life at this chapter. Mm. Often it's on the cover of a magazine or as mm. the face of a campaign. And it's so easy to detach from, like, you're just a normal person, you know, yeah. you've got parents, you live in the suburbs, you have bins that you've got to take out. Mm-hmm. And like one of the things I love about you is also how beautifully you navigate topics that are new in conversation in society that are sometimes awkward or difficult. But I was listening to you on Mia Friedman's podcast recently and the way that she had like genuine questions about mm. Once you come out as non-binary, how do you deal with restrooms? Do you change depending on which energy? Is it feminine or masculine? And Mm. how you were just like, look, you know, sometimes I walk into the wrong one and Mm. I'm either chatting with (laughs) girls over the basin or I'm standing at a urinal in a skirt, but I like the dick. I mean, what can I say? I was like, this is the energy we all need. (laughs) I'm so glad you feel that way. I'm so glad you feel that way. I mean, you know, it's one of the most overused words on the internet, but I can't stress enough how important it is just to live authentically. And then that should really resonate into everything that you do, whether you're a cleaner, like my parents were for a decade, or whether you're Kim Kardashian, um, (laughs) authenticity will get you everywhere. And I just don't believe in existing in any other way. And this is why we all adore you so much, Denny. Thanks, darling. <laughs> so, your way TA. Take us back to very young Denny growing mm. up in G Town. What were you like as a kid? I think it's so important to trace through all the chapters of people's lives before the one that we meet them in, particularly because I don't think we give enough airtime to how much we all lose direction along the way. Like now your values and your message are so clear and you have Mm. such a sense of purpose around how to communicate them. But I know there were many chapters beforehand of, you know, torment and challenge to get there and figure out who you are and you know a lot of people might not know that you were Jehovah's Witness from 10 to 18 and that carries with it a whole lot of challenge so talk us through that yeah I mean look I think first and foremost the word you were looking for there is trauma and whilst my childhood and I mean my whole life really has been filled with many layers of trauma my childhood was pretty idyllic. Like mum and dad are legends. They had me when they were 21. So we've always been very close. We have like a very, yeah, they were were babies having babies, but that was very normal in that decade. And, And also it's very normal in ethnic communities. I'm not sure what it's like in the Asian community, but in the ethnic community, like if you're a wog mate, you're having babies as soon as you can, as soon as you're fertile, okay? (laughs) Push them out. Push them out, sis. So mum had me at 21 and she was just, you know, I was her little best friend and she was mine and she still is to this day. So as a kid, it was lots of uncles and aunties and, you know, cousins and grandmas and everyone's a grandma in, you know, Serbian community. You respect everyone as if they're literally your immediate family. And our house was kind of like Grand Central Station. So everyone would always come (laughs) to our house. Yeah. We were the house that like hosted weekend parties and Monopoly. I remember my uncles and aunties used to play Monopoly till like four in the morning and, you know, just be like drinking and like smoking cigs and just sitting there like proper ethnic humans. And I would just sit there like watching them in awe being like, oh my gosh, I'm so lucky to live in this community that I'm never alone. But then that side saddled 
with always feeling tremendously alone in my feelings and my identity. So I had this really like, you know, robust community around me, but I had no one to talk to about how I really felt. So it was my whole life actually is very, has been about duality. If I was to use a word to describe my life, it's duality because you know, on one hand, you have this very creative, always dancing in front of the telly, always putting on a show <laughs> when family would come over person versus then this really quite introverted, anxious, overthinker, hypervigilant person. So there was constantly that. So I'd go to school, get super bullied, but then I'd come home and I'd have my mum there and, you know, she's my bestie and we'd sit down and watch Days of Our Lives and, you know, talk like adults. So yeah, it was real dichotomy growing up, but I have nothing mm. but fond memories of my childhood. The good will always outweigh the bad with my childhood. Oh, that's really mm. beautiful. Mm. And I think something that's really, I think probably resonating with so many people about your whole journey is knowing certain aspects of your identity before you could even, like you were four, I think, when you first started to really mm-hmm. think about sexuality and gender and, and well before you even had the words to yeah. articulate what that meant. And for you it's been in sexuality, but for other people it might be in career or mm-hmm. other kind of you know, inclinations, but a lot of us spend a lot of our lives shedding the layers of hiding who we are and figuring out, you know, what's really underneath. So it's it's fascinating to me that it started from from so young for you and it then took you until, you know, four weeks before your 19th birthday, before mm-hmm. your first coming you out. You know, done your research, darling. <laughs> it's the ex-lawyer in me. Yes. <laughs> and in the meantime, I mean, you were also trying to figure out what you were going to do in life and what your purpose was. So fashion studies at the Paris Fashion Institute, then starting at Maya. Like how did that coming of age, teenage to sort of starting your career time work out for you as that it was starting to become more like you knew how to articulate what you were feeling and then to a religious immigrant family (laughs) breaking the news. Yeah. So, I mean, hypervigilance and a sense of self-awareness is I think something that's very innate to queer people because you're constantly analyzing how you feel because it's so different to what you see around you. So as a teenager, like I I said, or sorry, like you said, I knew I was gay from as early as four. I knew I wasn't as a boy from as early as three. I just didn't have the language for that one. Yeah, from as early as three. But wow. I knew, yeah, but the the gay thing, I mean, you know, luckily I grew up in a time where there was language to articulate how I felt sexually. Um so navigating how to come out was really hard because it's honestly I remember sitting in church, babe, and thinking you will never come out. Like you just, that will never be an option. And I would crumble because we used to go to church three times a week. We would door knock twice a week and generally, if not um, once a weekend at least. So being Jehovah's Witness is a lifestyle. It's the same as being, you know, a Scientologist, a Muslim, any of those religions that are your life. That's what being a J-Dub was like. Um, so that's why I shut re- up. You just called it a J dub. Yeah, that J-dub. is amazing. Yeah. So, <laughs> I love this so much. Um, I really resonate with stories when I hear these stories. Like I just recently watched my unorthodox life, <gasps> you know, and when I hear these stories of people coming out of these very lifestyle based religions, um, you know, being a Jehovah's Witness has been referred to by some of my friends as like a little bit cult adjacent. And whilst I will never jump on mic and like bash that religion, I have nothing but respect for people's faith. It's really 
insidious in that it creeps into your every decision because you're mm. first and foremost, you're putting God's will first. And if you're a little gay kid at church, like fantasizing about, I don't know, your science teacher, <laughs> that doesn't fly down so well with the old mate upstairs. So it was really tricky for me to navigate that. But when I got to 19, I was like, I can't do it anymore. I will either come out or end my life. And yeah. it was one or the other. And I, you know, life is too precious. So it was difficult, but then I will say that as soon as I came out, all the other little parts of the puzzle started to align because fashion's always been in my blood. I've always been obsessed with it. And, you know, fashion is driven by the queer community. There's so many beautiful queer people in that industry. So I, I'm really glad I came out when I did because as soon as I got that first job at Maya, I could just exist really freely as, you know, I'll say then like a gay man working in fashion. It felt really glamorous. It was my little kind of devil wears Prada moment and <laughs> it was fabulous and I loved it. But I think that had I gone into that job still in the closet, still a Jehovah's Witness, like it would have been torture. Absolutely. I think that hiding or suppressing really fundamental parts of your identity in any area, but especially sexuality, mm. are exhausting. I mean, yeah. how can you even function? Life and identity is unraveling so fast anyway, let mm -hmm. alone with deep fundamental layers of yourself being hidden all the time. Mm -hmm. I love also that you describe your Devil Wears Prada moment as being like you were taking Pantone colours as seriously as life or death. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yes, so important mm -hmm. in the scheme mm -hmm. of life. <laughs> mm -hmm. I said to someone yesterday, I said, the, what we do is PR, it's not ER. And that's a common thread. <laughs> yeah, that's like a common phrase in my industry because, you know, it can be so easy to get consumed by the things that you love. If anything, it's kind of fabulous that you should love something so much that a color keeps you up at night or, you know, <laughs> a dress that you're dying to get for your client for the Logies would keep you up at night. Like what a first world problem to have. But then the last two years has made us realize what, what is actually important in life. So yeah, mm. the Pantone colors at that time, let me tell you the amount of sleep that we lost at Cosmo when something would go to print <laughs> and it was the wrong color. But now you just kind of go, Oh, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, life goes day. on. Seize the yay babes. Seize know? the yay babes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I also love that you mentioned the jigsaw puzzle pieces and mm. I think like the way TA or the path TA concept why I spend so much time on it is to show that there isn't a single guest we have ever had no matter how far along they are and no matter how successful or mm. or not yet at the stage that they want to be at no matter where they are there's always identity as puzzle pieces no one wakes up with the full puzzle in fact at all times I think we spend so much of our time in career and in identity aiming for like the perfect us, the perfect us, as if it's a destination, as if one day we're going to wake up and be like, this is me. Preach. But I feel like at any time, we're actually just getting rid of pieces that don't work and adding new pieces that do. And the puzzle is meant to be evolving. So at the time, Cosmo was your whole identity. Mm. That was what made you happy. And that was aligned with who you wanted to be and what you wanted to get out of life. But it's okay for that to move on and shift and for different chapters to unravel. So I mean, you've worked in the UK, you started at British Vogue, Style by Denny has kind of all been merged into the pathway from, you know, maybe the beginning of that fashion career mm. until really Cosmo ended in 2018 and that started a whole new cycle of rebuilding identity. Yeah. Can you talk us through building from an intern in mm. a new industry to becoming an editor? Like that in yeah. itself is like one whole lifetime's worth of material. Sure. 
So like I always say that I don't think I'm a tremendously like academic person. My brain is, is the creative side. So when I left school, I did contemplate going to university and kind of getting a bachelor degree in fashion, but that was just never going to be my path. And also I think culturally it was ingrained to me that only rich white people go to uni. Wogs don't go to uni. It's not like there's <laughs> one person in my family, that, in my extended family that's gone to uni. Wow. Um, and also just a um, disclaimer for your listeners, I use that term incredibly endearingly, so I hope that people are aware of that. So, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't expect anything right. less. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was like, no, 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 you're not going to go to uni. But I really i have always had a really strong work ethic. And I said to mum and dad, well, I'm going to go do this course in Paris. It goes for a summer. And then I'll come back and I'll just hit the ground running. Because I firmly believe that you can learn best on the job you can never learn yes. like the way you learn in a classroom is not how you learn on the job so when I moved to London yeah I just started interning my little took us off so I worked in PR for a year had no idea what PR even meant so I had to google what it stood for and then did that for a year and actually did quite well I was like okay this is cool I can talk a lot I know how to market things and then I jumped to the fa- to the magazine sector because I've been obsessed with mag since I was 11 so when you're like interning at British Vogue which talk about seize the A that happened because I introduced myself to the editor at a fashion show and basically like cornered her and was like, can I email you please? I really want to email you my CV. (laughs) She was like, sure. (laughs) You know, and then six weeks later I'm sitting in the cupboard at British Vogue and I was like, wow, how am I here? So all those moments are just really, you know, for want of a better term, seizing that opportunity. If there is someone in front of you, introduce yourself. The worst they can do is look at you and like say no, So I did that a lot. So when I came home from London, I started the blog Style by Denny, which doesn't exist anymore, but I really wanted that, that magazine job. There was something about it for me that I just needed to tick off the list. So when I moved to Sydney at 26, I started interning at 27 and my dad was like, how can you do this again? You're not getting paid again. You're working, you know, a retail job to supplement this internship. Like, is it actually worth it? And I said, dad, I have a feeling it's going to, it's all going to work out, dad. And I was there for six months and then got a job, you know, and that was the best five years of my life. Cosmo are some of the most cherished memories I will ever have. The things I learned in those five years will serve me forever. The family that I made there and the, the puzzle piece that Cosmo played in me finding my identity was by far the most defining chapter of my life thus far. Wow. That's so fascinating. And I think it's so valuable, that reminder of like, if you don't ask, it's a no. And there are some, you know, pathways that are really clear. Like you can't be a doctor unless you do X amount of years of study and you have to do. Please go to uni if you want to be a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) But there are also areas where if you don't just sort of suggest an opportunity, almost create one where there isn't one, like if you hadn't been bold enough to walk up and have a conversation with that editor, yeah. you would never have gotten that that job, which would then probably have not led to the internship, which then yeah. wouldn't have led to climbing the ladder. And I think that people really want to walk into a job at the job they want. They don't yeah. want to go from the bottom and believe that positioning yourself where lightning is mm-hmm. going to strike at each point can get you further than you could ever know. So, I mean, you became fashion editor from yeah. an intern within yeah. one organisation. What would you say to anyone who's aspiring to become, you know, especially in journalism where it's fiercely competitive, but just making yourself stand out and being patient while you're not where you want to be yet, but also trusting that you will be able to get there. How did you navigate that ladder? 
So my advice I would say to anyone is you need to be two things or if you're not one of the two, then you need to figure out how to be the other one. Because for me, the magic source of success in any field actually is to be the smartest person in the room, but also the kindest person in the room. So for me, it's all about if you love insects, throw yourself into research and education until you know the back of insects, like the way <laughs> I know the catalog of Prada's fucking discography of life. Like I can tell you every <laughs> Prada collection that's existed between when she started to now. And that came with many, many long nights of research, but it never felt like work because I loved it. It was a world mm. that I'm genuinely obsessed with. So when I first got that internship in London, my bosses were just really impressed by how much I knew my my knowledge of the history of fashion my knowledge of references I'm, I'm like a rolodex of information so knowledge maybe is better word than saying smart because I think that can be quite subjective but be knowledgeable know your shit and then yeah. secondly be kind because people notice that when you come into the office or any space that you work in and you have a kind disposition and you genuinely want to be at people's you know hand hand length to help do you need this do you need that is it getting a coffee is it photocopying stuff doesn't matter what it is when you are there to assist you just do it I used to pick up you know the laundry of a stylist Mm. I was assisting in London you know I when I started working with her she was going through a breakup I was her therapist more than I was her assistant (laughs) but you know you just do it I think also we've kind of learned over the last few years especially that there can be a great amount of you know, an abuse of power that occurs in those sorts of environments. So don't let people take the piss. But in in the best environment, you will learn every single day on the job. And when you come with eagerness and kindness and empathy and you just like, you go ham, there's no way you will fail, none. And I, and I knew that. You have to have a lot of self-assurance in a weird way. And for me, there was no plan B. Everyone used to yeah. always say to me, what's going to happen if you don't work in fashion? And I was like, well, that's never going to happen. So catch you on the flip side. <laughs> so maybe that's stupid maybe that's really like idealistic and you know quite romantic in my mind but that was the only option oh my gosh I love that you like really bring to the forefront of our attention how kindness is such an important currency that Mm. gets overlooked so often and that's I think that's the thing that people remember more than that you you know sold x amount of magazines and that these metrics happened and you weren't this amount of money it's kindness and your Uh legacy and I can you know when I became a fashion editor I then suddenly became someone who was managing interns and I would see them come through the doors and I would always see the sort of rich human with the Gucci belt and, you know, (laughs) they got an Uber to intern that day. And then I would see the working class person, you know, in their Kmart jeans, doing the best that they can. And I will tell you now, I could care less what brand the shirt is on your back. If you don't enter a space with kindness, people will remember And truly, I can't stress that enough, fashion is often very superfluous and superficial, but it really does not matter what you're wearing. It matters like how your soul shines through. You could be wearing a paper bag, but if you have, (laughs) if you have the X factor, you can buy the Gucci belt when you get the pay rise. Don't worry about it. Like until then, (laughs) you just do you. 
Oh my gosh, so true. And I think that's something else that I like looking back at your time at Cosmo and the way you've spoken about it as well is the idea that like to get to where you want to go, you do have to sometimes do things you don't want to do and go through mm-hmm. chapters that you don't love. You don't seizing the yay isn't having yay all the time. Mm-hmm. It means doing all the things that are necessary to get you there. And like I know you started in digital and YouTube, yeah. which is something you weren't really even interested in, but <laughs> no. it was a foot in the door. And like one of the ways you once described being a picture editor was if there's an article in Cosmo about anal and there's a picture of a peach next to it, I was the person in charge of the picture of the peach. I was like, nice. I mean, you really worked your way uh-huh. up from the bottom, started from the bottom, now we're here. You literally, <laughs> and you know how much pride I used to take in that? I would come to those picture meetings with every example under the sun. Because, you know, you get a brief and it's like, oh, we're doing a story about, you know, blowjobs. Okay, well, you can't, you know, short of putting a dick in the magazine, which we didn't do, <laughs> you know, that stopped in the 90s. You have to think, you know, outside the box and think, okay, how am I going to make this exciting, but also interesting and visually appealing and I really took a lot of pride in those jobs and I knew that they were not what I wanted to do. They were not the end goal, but I knew that they would get me there. And, you know, Beyonce wasn't built in a day. Do you really think she wanted to be on all of those like competitions when she was nine years old, getting rejected and, you know, seeing men win over her? Absolutely not. But look at her now. Right. <laughs> Danny was also not built in a day. I love that. <laughs> so, you, baby. Uh, <laughs> even though, you know, you, people could have turned up in a paper bag and won mm. your heart with their kindness, I'm sure there were some moments that were just so fucking glam being a fashion editor at Cosmo. So what were some of your, like dish the dirt on some of your highest highs in that role and then some of the lowest lows as well that we might never expect could kind of happen when on the outside it probably looked like you were just smashing it. So let's start with the lows. The lows of working in magazines is that they pay jack shit. So, and I don't say that lightly, you know, my first salary at Cosmo I think was $41,000 or $39,000. It was pretty menial. And to live in Sydney and to be paying rent, like, (laughs) you know, I remember my Do the math. Do the math. math. And when my, you know, my friends were working in in accountancy jobs and stuff and I would call them and, you know, they're on 80, 90K a year. And here I am earning like, you know, 40 grand a year and trying to put two coins together and then looking, (laughs) looking the part as well, because it does come with the pressure. So that was really hard. Often it felt like, you know, you were there because you you should be so honoured to be there. Mm. You know, it would have been nice to have been paid accordingly. However, what I did see from early on was that, you know, when I got the job, my editor said to me, Denny, you got your dream job five years too late because in the heyday of ACP Media, when Kerry Packer was there, it was like big salaries, fancy Christmas hampers that every employee got every day. I used to hear those stories. Meanwhile, when I worked at Bauer Media, Bauer Media didn't even provide us with coffee, like instant coffee in the kitchen. So uh, let me tell you a funny story. On my first week of Cosmo, I went to the kitchen and I opened the drawer and there was a jar of Makona in the kitchen. And I was like, I called my mum and I was like, mum, this is great. They've got like a Makona in the drawers. So I, was, I was making myself a cup of Makona every morning. A week later, there's a sign on the thing that says, whoever is stealing my Makona, please stop. <gasps> Written by Lee Campbell, who's now one of my best friends. And oh I, my walked, God. I walked into the office and I said, Lee, I thought Bauer provided that Makona. And everyone just looked at me and said, oh, Denny, darling, you have so much to learn. Like, (laughs) you know, 
So I think that was oh, probably, darling. yeah, that, that was probably <laughs> the not so fun part because when you're producing a magazine as well, you want big budgets, you have all these grand dreams, but I will say to flip that to a positive, it teaches you how to be really resourceful. It teaches you yes. how to make the best product possible with very little budgets. So, you know, we learned something. It taught me how to live in a city like Sydney that was so expensive and just make it work with buying stuff at H&M instead of like rolling up in, you know, Bottega Veneta. So that's the low side. The, the highlight and perhaps the most incredible surreal moments of that job were the people that we had access to. So I'll never forget my first year at Cosmo. We used to have this event called Woman of the Year. And for the first one, you know, we had Julia Gillard being inaugurated into our Woman of the Year Hall of Fame. She was brought up onto stage by Lisa Wilkinson. You know, the following year, Julia Gillard inaugurated Delta Goodrum into our Hall of Fame. Mm. And when you get to be in the presence of these people, like Julia Gillard blew me away. And I would never have those opportunities had I not worked at Cosmo. In terms of the glamorous stuff, absolutely. There's packages arriving every day gifts arriving every day. That's just journalism or perhaps lifestyle media 101. You become actually quite numb to them because you're like, oh, another press kit's arrived, another free lipstick, you know, another <laughs> random cake that someone sent you. It does become a little bit, you get used to it, but it was something that I never took for granted because I would look mm -hmm. at my other friends' jobs and they were working at like KPMG earning a hundred grand a year, but they were fucking miserable. Whereas, you know, at Cosmo, the bachelor would be, you know, debuting on channel 10 and we'd get some shirtless model that would come in with <laughs> like you know a tray of roses to like hand out to everyone in the office I mean it's pretty great you know so I mean oh that, that's what I would say was uber glamorous I you know I didn't get I didn't work at like a Vogue or a Harper's though so it wasn't like I was getting in like Chanel handbags that would have been nice but I will say here's some tea for you when I Ooh. interned at InStyle in the UK I'll never forget I interned there over the Christmas period and the gifts that these editors were getting, I'm talking Chanel bags, Christian Louboutin Stop. shoes, Prada for Christmas. And I was like, wow, these people are living a life. You know, the editor of InStyle at the time had a chauffeur who drove her to work every day. Like <laughs> I can tell you right now, Bronwyn McCann was not being chauffeured to work every day. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So this week is actually the two-year anniversary of my episode with Laura Brown. Oh, my gosh, I love Laura. I love her. Me too. She's the great. <laughs> Greatest ever, but we were we were on Necker Island of mm. all places, wow. and she had to drive a buggy. Couldn't drive a buggy. I was like Laura Brown trying to drive a buggy. This is hilarious. Wow. Wow. <laughs> oh, I mean, there is an example of an incredible woman who is at the top of her game and she's the most down to earth woman ever. I've <gasps> met her once, and I literally was just like in awe of how kind she was. You know, it goes back to that. She knows her shit, Absolutely. but she's fucking kind, mate. You know. I also love this, like you dishing the tea of how on the one hand, you're like shooting Taylor Swift for the cover. Totally. On the other hand, the coffee you were excited about was instant Makona. It wasn't even like <laughs> Nespresso. It was no. like, we get free instant Makona. This is so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was Cosmo in a nutshell, basically. But God, it was good. It was lovely. Yeah. You may have seen Denny as one of the faces of the Body Shop's self-love campaign, just one of the many ways that they support equality and one of the many reasons I love working with them. Another Body Shop initiative I loved learning about is their Youth Activist Series. 
Since 2019, The Body Shop has proudly supported Charity for Girls Equality, Plan International Australia, through this leadership program, supporting young people as they become future leaders and change makers. Globally, we're living through massive digital change escalated through the pandemic and young people need to be supported to navigate the space. Every day, young people globally, particularly girls and gender diverse folks, are physically threatened, racially abused, sexually harassed and body shamed online, especially when they raise their voices and share their opinions. Online violence causes real harm and it's silencing young people in a space where they should be free to be. In 2021, the youth activists have undertaken extensive research asking what is needed to mobilise and support people to be active online bystanders when they witness online gender-based violence. So $1 from every Body Shop lip vinyl sold will be donated to Plan International Australia, the charity for girls' equality, to empower young people striving to create a safer online world. Visit thebodyshop.com.au to learn more. Now, one of the things I find the most interesting about this is how much you seem to just love that role and soak it up and have experienced in four years, like a mm. lifetime worth of development. But unlike many people, the chapters change when they grow out of a role or mm. some big disaster happens, like they get sick or they burn out. But mm. for you, it was Cosmo closing in 2018 and that wasn't something that was on the cards or that you gradually built yourself up to so that tearing away of one identity Mm -hmm. and then throwing yourself into well when I don't have that title and prestige who am Mm -hmm. I is something I think a lot of people have gone through in this pandemic having their plans torn away from them and having to rebuild but realizing that's actually really exciting sometimes storms don't come to disrupt your life they come to clear a path for something better how oh. did you write? Yes, sis. <laughs> How did that feel to have that dream kind of almost ripped away from you, but then have that chance to now be doing what you're doing, be mm. Geelong based again, be freelancing, and then, you know, becoming the face of huge campaigns yourself, like the body shop, which I, mm-hmm. I really want to talk about. But yeah. yeah, first, let's go through just the transition. Sure. I mean, when I tell you the demise, or the closure of Cosmo, because it wasn't a demise. It was literally closed in a space of four days. <gasps> four yeah. days. Yeah, Tuesday we got the announcement. Friday was our last day in the office, yeah. So when I tell you that that was equivalent to, like, my biggest breakup, if not more, yeah. I mean it. It was gut-wrenching. It was and – and it wasn't an instant – like, and it wasn't an instant gut-wrenching. You know when someone dies – here's a perfect example. When so Everyone's different. Everyone processes grief different. But for me generally, when someone dies, you know, and it's quite a somber thought, you get that phone call and you're like, fuck, wow, okay, this is full on. But it takes you a couple of days and then you find yourself sobbing in the aisles of, su- of the supermarket, right? <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. what Cosmo was like. That first right. day was so surreal. We went to the pub at like 11 o'clock and just drank our sorrows and we were inundated with love and messages of support from the entire industry and all of our readers. But then it wasn't until like day three that I woke up and I was like, wait, I don't have a job to go to? Like, what is this? And then it became even more insidious because for five years I was Denny from Cosmo. Mm. It was on my practically on my license, you know. That, <laughs> no, but truly, it was, you know, that's how I would introduce myself. You know, now I introduce myself with, hi, my name is Denny. My pronouns are they, them. Back then it was like, hi, I'm Denny from Cosmo, always. Yeah. And that suddenly it's like this big thing that hangs above you. And then suddenly that thing is taken away from you. And you're like, who am I? 
without that thing. And circling back to what we were discussing earlier about ego, you know, it would be remiss of me to not acknowledge the fact that, of course, there came gravitas with saying that you worked at Cosmo. Mm. Cosmo was the brand that your Uber driver would know or, you, you know, your 60-year-old Serbian uncle knew Cosmo. So, there was, <laughs> yeah, it's a legacy brand and it was something that I was tremendously proud of. So losing that was really hard. I went away with my mum to two weeks. I took my redundancy money and said, let's go to New York because I don't know what to do with my life right now. So I took her on a holiday and we spent a shit ton of money that in retrospect, you know, could have gone into savings, but that's okay. Yeah, and but YOLO, I, right? You seize the yay. Seize the yay, absolutely. So when I got back, then it was like crunch time. And I was like, I can't afford to live in Sydney as a freelancer. I just can't. And also this coincided with one of the biggest the darkest chapters in my life in terms of a relationship that I was in. So I remember saying to my mum in New York, I think I need to come home. I don't know for how long, but I just need to come home. And the second I got to Geelong, I remember just feeling an instant wave of peace. When I landed at Avalon Airport, I was like, oh. Avalon? Yeah. I was like, now you can exhale. And, you know, getting in the car and driving down the highway and seeing the familiar little spots. And Geelong saved my life. And I don't say that lightly. Yeah. I can't believe the opportunities that have come my way. Like gratitude doesn't even cut it. And to go from not knowing your identity, not knowing how you're going to exist, not knowing what your career is going to look like to them being on a fucking life-size billboard for a international brand like The Body Shop <gasps> around the corner from where you used to work in Sydney and you used to schlep to Cosmo, you know, on that 39k a year salary, pretty fucking epic. And I don't, like, that's not lost on me at all. Oh my gosh. It gives me goosebumps. And it makes me also feel so privileged to be able to share this story at this chapter where it's reassuring to anyone who's going through a shit time, because like, Uh it's the, it's those low lows where you actually get off the productivity hamster wheel of busy and productive and noise and come back to like shit without anything that I thought was important. You you actually get to realize what really was important all along, which is often not the things that you've been living your life in accordance with. And I love how you've pieced yourself back together in like a more authentic way than you probably knew mm, was absolutely. you beforehand. But it does involve a lot of darkness, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of mental health challenges. That rebuilding of identity is probably the most disorientating thing anyone can go through. Talk us through some of that like self-doubt and mm. and the darkness. How do you find those? Like you're now one of the most positive, excitable, grateful people. But when you're in the depths of a depressive episode, you can't feel those emotions necessarily. And it's if anyone is in them right now, I think it's so reassuring to hear that people do work their way back out of it to higher highs than they ever knew they could have, i.e. a full-size billboard right around the <laughs> corner from all your old bosses like, hey. Yeah, I mean, look, firstly, thank you. That's so tremendously kind of you to say. I think that for me, I always present as this very positive person. Like I always have ever since I was little. My dad and I are very similar in that way. But I've always had this little cloud that hangs over me and I never knew what that was called it wasn't until recently that I really started to look into that trauma you know the anxiety a few little episodes of depression that have come along and this real type a overachieving thing which I've realized in therapy is that it's completely related to my queerness because when you grow up 
and you have this feeling of othering, particularly Mm. when that's linked to masculinity and feeling not masculine enough, according to the world's stereotypes, you feel like you have something to prove. It's like, no, you're not going to be that kid that everyone made fun of that was called a faggot every day at high school. You're going to make something (sighs) of yourself. And that, which is great, I love that, but that type A kind of mentality can be quite detrimental often. So during that dark period, I just had to like peel off the layers and go, okay, why do you have a habit of falling into abusive relationships? Why does that keep happening? What's the common denominator here? Because as much as it might be the boyfriends, it's also you, Denny. So what, what, what's your role within this? Wow. You know, why don't you back yourself enough? Why are you too nervous to go and ask your boss for a pay rise? Why are you too nervous to speak up in relationships of all kinds? So when I came home, the first thing I did was find a therapist it changed my life. And I've been in therapy before, but finding a therapist is like finding a soulmate. That therapist, whilst I don't see him anymore, honestly, it's, it was just light bulb moment after light bulb moment. Then I met a spiritual healer who I work with and have worked with for the last two years. Her name's Elise. She lives in Geelong. Shout out Elise. Elise, (laughs) Elise changed my life because when I sat down in my first Reiki healing session with her, she taught me about shadow work and the inner child and how you kind of look at all of these things. So going through the darkness is a constant thing, mate. And then you, and then you throw on the pandemic, like who thought that little thing would happen? <laughs> it's like, you know, if, if coming to terms with being made redundant wasn't hard enough and then trying to find your feet as a freelancer, then you add on to it gender dysphoria and a pandemic. Beautiful, like beautiful. What a melting pot of joy for you. Love that for you. Love that for me, but diamonds are made in the rough, honey. Right. So, you know, you have to kind of like, if you don't do the work, you can't really vibrate on the frequency in which you deserve. So I hope I've answered your question, but essentially for me, it's like when you have those moments of darkness, and I've had them ever since I was little, the quicker you sit with yourself and the quicker you do that shadow work, the better you'll be in the long run because life's too short to to waste sitting in that darkness for too long. Absolutely. And I always come back to that quote that sometimes good things fall apart so better things can fall together, but that it does involve the things falling apart first. It usually involves some kind of very painful, uncomfortable shitstorm, but it's always for a reason. And you emerge out the other end like that's why that had to happen. Mm It's also so interesting that you mentioned how that inner child constantly feeling like you had to prove something because of your otherness in a very different context. I realized through therapy that, so it's interesting you said earlier that you don't know about the Asian community. I'm actually adopted. So I was born in an orphanage when I was six months old. I moved here, been brought up by like Caucasian country bumpkins in Kippsland. But it's interesting that my constant burnout is because I have to prove that I was worthy of the opportunity to grow up here. And it's so interesting how like often your otherness makes you feel like you have to earn extra to just keep up with, you know, normal. Yes. And I think that fuels a lot of us. But without therapy, you wouldn't know that that's what was leading you into kind of destructive or or self-annihilating tendencies. Mm -hmm. But therapy is the best the best and you know what's really interesting I don't know how much you know about this but I've been learning a lot through Elise about like intergenerational trauma and whilst you have been adopted I'm sure that there is like an ancestral lineage that runs through you that comes with a whole lot of trauma 
you know. And when you come to a place that is, you know, a colonised country full of white people, of course it's going to be, even if you were, you know, raised by white people, you'll still struggle with that intergenerational trauma. So, wow, that's so fascinating. We need to talk about that when we see each other at Puftuf because... Yes, oh, my God, on a podium. Yeah, on a podium. (laughs) Because that fascinates me so much because I I never realised how much intergenerational trauma and sort of internalized racism I had towards myself until I was sitting in a therapist's chair and he said to me, Denny, the reason why you only date white men is because you think that they're better than you. And I was like, wow. Whoa. Yeah. Right. Oh <laughs> so we have lots of ground together. Oh my god, I know. I cannot wait for our next catch up yeah. in real life. <laughs> so then was it in that space of kind of breaking down to break through mm. that then you came to this realization that you needed to come out again because most people find coming out once traumatic enough. But to mm. come out a second time again to family that you care about, to have already been through one coming out, but also yeah. in a time where this next coming out has involved new pronouns. Like it's a mm. fundamental change to how you refer to yourself, to how other people relate to you. Mm-hmm. And that has, you know, you don't want to make a mistake. It's still quite a misunderstood. Like a lot of us aren't, at, this isn't in my vernacular. So even yeah. I was like, oh my God, what if I accidentally say him? You know, totally it's a fine. whole new world. Mm. How did you realize that this was the right mm-hmm. time for you to make this, you know, next chapter in your identity? Sure. So in a nutshell, I'm a firm believer that if the universe is holding something right in front of you, right in front of your nose, you can no longer ignore it. So as I said to you earlier, I've known that I wasn't a boy, but I didn't want to be a girl necessarily. I've known that since I was three, So, but I never had the language. And then over the last five years, the term non-binary has never been more, you know, trending let's say everyone's bloody talking about it (laughs) you know the pronoun thing yada 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 I started hearing these little things I started being exposed to things and it wasn't until Sam Smith came out as non-binary that I (sighs) really yeah I read an article that they were interviewed for and everything that they said in that article it brought me close to tears because I was like wow that's exactly how I feel interesting but when I'm presented with something that really scares me I ignore it I did the same thing with the gay with the gay thing so I was like ignore ignore control or delete then (laughs) (laughs) then I could no longer control or delete when six months later I met a non-binary person for the first time in real life and this was about two months before the pandemic began and I mean as soon as they opened their mouth and started telling me about their experience I internally broke down. I kept myself very composed. And then after that event, I said, hey, would you mind if we exchange numbers? Because I just want to ask you a few things this week. And they said, yeah, call me. And as soon as I picked up the phone and called them that week, I burst into tears and I was like, I think I am, you know, what you are. And then we went into lockdown and the gift of lockdown. Yeah. But the gift of lockdown for me was two things, safety and time. So first and foremost, I had the safety of being in my home to be able to like dip my feet, play with makeup, wear some things. I was kind of dressing the way I dress now, 
before that anyway around Geelong, which was getting a lot of interesting looks. And my parents were asking me a lot of questions and my cousins were like, are you transgender? And it was all a bit of a talking point. When we're at home in lockdown, I could do whatever I wanted to. And I knew that I didn't have anyone to really judge me other than my parents. I was going to say Mama Macca. Like- <laughs> by the way, Mama really had some issues with it. So that was very confronting. And then the gift of time was that I suddenly had all the time in the world to watch all the documentaries, listen to all the podcasts, do my research. And once you really have all of the puzzle pieces and they come together, you can no longer hide them. And Mm -hmm. I found myself feeling the same way as I felt just before I came out as gay in that literally I felt like it was going to explode and vomit out of my mouth. I had to get it (laughs) off my chest. And the second I got it off my chest, as hard as it was, everything changed, not only personally, but also professionally. Like coming out as non-binary just changed my life in every way, shape and form. Oh my gosh. It has been one of the most heartwarming, beautiful things to watch. Like you had already had quite a profile and following before you came out. So for everyone to have gone through it with you and kind of be taken along for the ride, rather than just meeting you and you'd already come out and you already knew how you felt I think seeing how difficult it has been but also how much you've owned it and weaved it into the story has been so beautiful and I imagine has given a lot of other people who are quite confused about who they are permission to not be scared to investigate this like you're probably the person who you met who helped you for so many other people has your sexual inclination changed in that before you knew you liked people with boys Mm. But has it changed to now people with penises? Yeah. So for me, when I first came out as non-binary, it's funny, so funny that you mentioned that because one of the first questions that the people around me started asking was, are you bisexual now? Or are you pansexual now? And I was like, honey, I think you're getting confused here. My second, my <laughs> I'm sexual, definitely yeah, confused. Yeah, yeah, but that's fine. That's totally normal, by the way. So <laughs> my, you know, my sexuality is still the same. Like, I have a dick. I like other people who have dicks, whether those people are cis men or non-binary trans people, as long as there's a penis involved, it's going to be a good time, basically. That's kind of how I'm sexually identify. But I will say I've always been a little bit like, we'll try anything once, like be a little bit fluid. You know, I had my first experience (laughs) with a vagina like two years ago, and I never thought I would do that. And it was bloody beautiful so you know I heard about that I heard that your dad was like he was so proud proud of you (laughs) (laughs) he was so proud you know so never say never but I will say that I am you know 99.9 percent a raging homosexual and love it. I love it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I think this is why, I mean, the fact that our sexuality is so much more fluid, there are terms now, like there are actual Mm -hmm. labels to describe things that didn't have a name before, which would have made it even more confusing. But I think for the, you know, cis heterosexual person, it's overwhelming to have Mm. pansexual, bisexual, non-binary, trans, like there's so many different terms now and Mm -hmm. you don't want to offend anyone either, but you also want to, like one thing you do really well is make everyone feel safe to ask questions Mm. so that they can further their education rather than being like, what if I say Mm. the wrong thing? I'm just not going to ask and then I won't know. Have you found it easy to suddenly get so many questions about sexuality and I, do you get confused ever with your own pronouns and how do you choose bathrooms, like the practical yeah. things day yeah, to day? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so first up, listen, I get 
confused all the time. Okay, I good. Fuck, <laughs> yeah, I fuck up my own pronouns all the time. Really? I've, yeah, all the time. I've got a handful of non-binary friends and I often fuck up their pronouns as well. We are all human, my darling. And it's, it's really a rewiring of our brains in many ways, even though you know, one of my go-to answers to this question is we've actually been using they, them, for example, in the singular, our whole lives. We've just never been aware of it. So, but it's just rewiring the context of this language. In terms of the questions that I get asked, I mean, I'm just so happy to be able to teach people as and when I'm learning them, you know? Mm. So when I first came out, I had so many questions for that first non-binary person that I met because I was like, okay, so am I still gay or am I now like pansexual because I'm like genderless? What about people that are attracted to me? Do they have to be trying to be attracted (laughs) to me? Like, Is there a criteria? Do I give them a form? Yeah, totally. So, and I remember they just said to me, Denny, babe, like you can make up the rules as you go. There are no rules. You know, being gay is a huge part of your identity. And also even the term gay, you know, it refers to so many people. So, yeah, the questions are just as daunting often as they are for me to you. However, my whole principle is that it's all about intention. And Mm. I can, you can hear in someone's tone, if the intention is pure and they genuinely want to know, or if they've genuinely made a mistake, we're good. Okay. We're absolutely fine. However, if you're going to be a bit of an asshole about it, that's a different story. But if you come to me with honesty and vulnerability and a desire to evolve, we're good. I don't care what you call me at the end of the day, you know. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, if I'm honestly offended, I'll let you know. You'll tell, yeah. 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 Have you found, you know, as you mentioned, there are some people who have who don't receive coming out as well. And, yeah, I mean, usually people who fundamentally in your life aren't the people who matter to you, but being as you know a kind of public figure you become the target i think of a lot of hate and then sometimes there is a bit of self-hatred along the way of when you do have different chapters of your identity looking back at how you treated yourself before and then after and how have you dealt with trolls externally and also those mm-hmm. thoughts internally for yourself and how does the body shop self love campaign kind of yeah. feed into that in terms of teaching yourself to rewire those thoughts of course. I think what's so beautiful about that campaign was that it was completely about self-love. It was an opportunity for the body shop to educate their audiences on probably I would say the most important thing we have in life, which is the relationship that we have with ourselves. Now that's all well and good until someone is telling you to kill yourself on Instagram, you know, Or what's worse perhaps is when people within your family, your extended family, are disrespecting you and invalidating you to a point that you're like, how are we even related? So those moments can be really, really difficult. But then I instantly go back to the message of that campaign. You know, loving yourself is the single most important thing. When you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning, you wake up with you first and foremost, whether you have someone next to you or not is irrelevant. And if you don't like who you are first, firstly, because you know, it's liking someone and loving someone is very different. You can mm. love your boyfriend just say, but you might not like him that week because he's being a bit of a shithead, right? <laughs> if you don't genuinely love yourself, Until you truly love yourself, I don't believe that you can love someone else. And RuPaul says that at the end of every episode of Drag Race. Yeah, for a reason. And it's so cliche, 
But I love that quote because I do believe that. So, yeah, look, navigating the trolling and the hate, it hurt the first few times. It still hurts occasionally. It hurts mostly when it comes from women because it often does come from women. When it comes from guys, I'm like, take a hike, mate. Like, you're just being a dickhead. But when it comes from women, that does really upset me because women to me are the best gender in the world. They're the most... (laughs) elite species I just adore them so much so that does hurt sometimes but I always look at the bigger picture I think okay why is this person because you know hurt people hurt people so oh my gosh this person is hurt and they're hurting me because of their own hurt so let's try unpack that hurt and how can we kind of reframe this and take this as a lesson that's kind of how I navigate it now because I don't have the energy nor the desire to be curled up into the fetal position because some wanker thinks that they control me on the internet. Like I don't have time for that. <laughs> oh my God. I love it so much. Such a good attitude. And the only way you can survive as well. Cause there, I think social is such a blessing and a burden, but if you take the good and learn how to cope with the bad, it can be such a powerful platform because that's how you're mm. changing people's lives. Yeah. I mean, it's the new media. It's the new, you know, growing up, I had Oprah Winfrey who I was obsessed with and I would watch her on the telly every day. Instagram is the new form of that. It's like, and we, yeah. now we have so many Oprahs who are constantly inspiring <laughs> us on the daily, you know? So yeah, it's, it's a tremendous tool when it's used with love, empathy and kindness. Then do you find because you have become such an important role model in this area that you're getting pulled in so many different directions and your career is going so well that like the constant connection to your platforms and like burnout is such a real thing. And also continuing with those like inner child feelings of having to still prove yourself. How do you manage burnout and like turning off your devices and having some time to yourself? (laughs) If you ever do that. (laughs) No, no, I'm getting better at it. So look, I'm an Aries, so I'm all or nothing. Are you as well? Yeah. When's your birthday? 24th of March. When's oh, yours? I'm April 1st. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. But still, oh my still, God. Still, they're Aries. High five. That's my, my husband's dad's birthday is April 1st. Oh, amazing. Mm. So, okay. Well, then you're very well aware. I am, you know, all or nothing. I'm either all in or I'm not in. There's no gray area with me. So when it comes to my work and, and socials and kind of keeping on top of it, you know, the first probably 12 months of it, like I was on top of it, responding to mm. every comment, every DM, <laughs> giving every single thing I could. And I found that it left my tank very empty in times of like, wait, who am I? Where am I? Like, what's going on? What day is it today? Oh, did I just miss my best friend's birthday? Shit, I better call her. Um, at, you know, at the start of the year, I was really fortunate in that I was traveling a lot. Like I was in Sydney every other week for work and life just became like, getting on a plane, checking into a hotel, being on set, do it again the next day, which God wouldn't mind that now after fucking four <laughs> months of lockdown, you know, again, first world problems, but it can become very draining emotionally and energetically. And I'm an empath. So I really like energy is everything to me. So mm. now I think I've really started to set some boundaries for the last probably three months, especially. I just realized that you know, unless I have a boundary and I let, unless I can fill my tank first, I'm not going to be able to fill anyone's tank. So actually this week for like a week straight, I've like not been looking at my socials after like 10 PM, 9 PM, which I know is still pretty late, but I'm a late, I'm a night owl generally. So, you know, I remember thinking, well, my parents own a cafe and they have trading hours. So why shouldn't I have my own trading hours? Or if I need a day off, I'm just, I just quickly say, Hey guys, I just need a day off. Like I need my mind to switch off today. Catch you on the flip side. I'll come back tomorrow and I'll be even sparklier. 
but today I just don't feel very sparkly. So it's kind of a constant thing to navigate, but I do think that you can never take that working class, you know, immigrant mentality, (laughs) that hard work ethic that my parents instilled in me. I don't think that will ever really go away. And I don't think Mm. I really want it to, to be honest. I really love that it's been such a big part of your identity Mm. and but also I think that Aries in particular need boundaries so even having like they can be very different and you can still work much longer hours than the average Mm -hmm. person but having some kind of boundary is important because you are sparkly yeah (laughs) you can't be sparkly all the time which leads really nicely to the last section which is play TA and that's where we let the inner child back out and I think even if you love your job and it doesn't feel like work just Mm -hmm. to keep create I mean at Cosmo you'll know more Mm. than anyone that if you don't get distance from your work every now and then and do something that's completely unrelated you can't be good at it because Mm -hmm. you're not getting perspective so how do you play? What are the things you do that make you forget what time it is, that have mm. no like productive goal, that aren't success yeah. driven, but yeah. like Netflix or like Bro. dancing? Like what do you do for fun? So in lockdown world, it's like. Just, <laughs> yeah, nothing. Yeah. In lo- no, 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 I have my things. In lockdown world, it's spending a night or, you know, multiple nights a week on the couch with my mum, tub of ice cream, the real housewives yeah. of Beverly Hills, or the keeping up with the Kardashians when it was airing. Yep. Reality TV is my favourite form of escape and doing that in the company of my mother and ice cream, heaven. In a post-lockdown world, in a pre-lockdown world, it's, you know, jumping in the car and going to the beach. I'm most comfortable when I'm in water. I'm most at peace when I'm in a body of water. Yeah. So wow. I love a swim. I really love like a cottage getaway. I was doing that a lot, actually. I would just jump in a car, you know, rent an Airbnb, go somewhere by myself. I love my own company. I can't even tell you how much I'm an introvert in that way. So being alone in like a hotel room or something or in like a little country town somewhere, heaven. Dancing is so bloody good for the soul. Like bring on the poof doof nights. I'm um, so excited yeah. to go together when it <laughs> when it finally um, reopens. Wait for that. And travel. I mean, it's probably the thing I miss the most. Travel and music are the things that generally fill my cup. So if I can sit in a car and like go somewhere, even if it's down the road, whilst listening to my favorite music, like music is free therapy. I dance every morning while I make coffee or while I'm in the shower and it's just the best. Oh my God, me too. Mm. I signed up for Steezy. I don't know if you've tried Steezy yet. So good. So So good. good. Oh my God. The the curry is amazing. Yeah, I know. I need to spend some more time on that. It's really good. It's so good. But I'll put like because my husband like usually trying to work or whatever, I'll listen to it in my headphones. So all he can hear is it. just like my footsteps and me going, he's <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't hear the music, but he's like, you're absolutely losing the plot by I yourself. I'm like, I'm having the greatest time. It's amazing. my life. <laughs> I'm seizing my yay. Exactly right. Second last question. Okay. Three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation. Okay, cool. So one, I have a photographic memory. Yeah. And I have had ever since I was little. So it's really come in handy, which is great. I love it so much. Two, I have five tattoos, which (gasps) me too. Yeah. Five tattoos. We love that. My gosh. We're really Aries twins. We're the same. I know. I have five as well. Where are yours? So I've got wrist. That was my first one. Gorgeous. Got one on my forearm, one on my bicep, one on my neck and one on my shoulder blade. (gasps) Nice. And then the third thing is that I oh so this is actually not a commonly known thing and I sort of had to explain this on my socials this week so for the 
comfort of ease, I always introduced myself as Serbian because my parents were both, well, my mum was born in Croatia, actually, and back then it was called Yugoslavia, but they grew up in Serbia. But what a lot of people don't know is that my lineage and my ancestry is actually Romani Gypsy via <sighs> the northern Indian region of Punjab. However, we only knew, we only found out about the Indian and Romani Gypsy kind of part recently. So up until the last 32 years of my life, we identified and sort of, you know, would very proudly call ourselves Serb Romanian because we speak Romanian in my house. Eu pot să vorbesc romanește. What? You're me. Okay, this is fucked up. Okay, so what the actual, that's wild. Okay, so listen up. That's so interesting that you just said that because in my family, in my community, so there's probably about 250 of us now, give or take a few deaths that we've had, in our family in Geelong, right? And that's the our Serb-Romanian community. So the Romanian that we speak is a very specific dialect of Romanian. So they don't actually speak it in Romania. So we were what? always very, yeah, and also we're very dark-skinned. So my whole family, a lot of my uncle's look Indian. I often get called Indian or Turkish or Lebanese, Middle East and whatever. I never get picked as Serb. So growing up, we were so confused. We were like, why are we Romanian yet? You know, we've met people who are Romanian that don't speak the same dialect as us. Like I understood exactly what you just said, but we would say that in a different dialect. So when I was very young, one of our great uncles said, our ancestry stems from India. I've done some research. I know this for a fact. And everyone kind of laughed at him. They were like, no, we don't believe you. Like, how do you get from India to Romania? Anyway, so I went to India for my 30th birthday. And when I tell you I felt like I was coming home, I called my mum in tears because I was like, mum, this is where we're from. Like, everyone here looks like us. Everyone here thinks I'm Indian. Every time I would go into a shop, no one thought I was a tourist. The warmth I feel from these people is wild. So we did a DNA ancestry test in lockdown and it came back as the Punjab region and more specifically the Romani gypsy people. Some people call them Romani travelers. So I've got, I follow all these Instagram accounts now of the Romani people and I'm like, oh my God, they look like my family. So we oh finally actually gosh. know where we're from. So I'm fluent in Serbian, Romanian and Macedonian-ish. <gasps> a little bit German-ish. So, like, there's lots of multiculturalism in this in this household and I don't think I talk about it enough and I need to talk about it more because I love it so much. That is so interesting. Why oh are you not Romanian? What yeah. the hell, man? <laughs> so I love languages. Like, okay. I studied three languages at uni. Everywhere wow. I go, I try and learn the language. We went to Rwanda. I picked up Kenya Rwanda. Like, I just, wow. they're my favourite. That's my yay is, like, learning yes, other languages. I love that for you. Because I think you, when you understand the way that people think mm-hmm. like language describes a thought process it mm. helps you understand their culture and so anyone that speaks another language I'm like teach me everything oh my and god I love that my ex was Romanian but because I speak French fluently and it's a I didn't know it was a Latin language it is I could pick it up really quickly because the grammar's the same and like you yes. just replace certain bits so I started to like speak it really conversationally wow. with him but then when we broke up like 12, 13 years ago, yeah. I was like, I'm never going to use Romanian again. Like of all well, the times. There you go. And it just, it's, <laughs> I have not said that phrase, I reckon, in a decade. Wow. But then I was like, like, what else do I, I just like remember random phrases every now and then. Mm. And I was in Paris studying. I did part of my law degree in Paris. Mm. And Lots there were of these Romanians rem- in Paris. 
Well, they were sitting at, like, there were these two ladies sitting at a table next to me bitching about everyone in the restaurant, mm. like, talking about me, talking about everyone, and, like, mm. this little Asian girl in France. I'm sure that the last thing they ever thought was that I could speak Romanian. And at the end, I was just like, oh, bye. Like I said something in Romanian. They were like, what? I love it. I love that moment. I've done that many times in my life. It's the greatest. More so with Serb. Yeah. Because Serb was my first language. I read, write, speak, dance, whatever. Romanian, I can understand it fluently and I can speak it back to say like my grandma because she speaks it the most in our family like good, like 50 to 60%, but I really need to flex my Romanian because when I have kids, I want to make sure that they know how to speak Romanian. Yeah. So what's your dialect? Is it similar? So very similar, but it's more slangy. It's more like villagey, which makes sense because we've moved around from India. So basically from what we've gathered from that report was that from India, we had a migration moment to uh, Northern Africa and then, so in Egypt. Then from Egypt, we made our way up to the Middle East and through the, you know, Arabia, Lebanon, those sorts of places. And then we landed in Serbia. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we have a bit of a real mixed bag kind of thing. And, and I've got members of my family that can actually speak and we call it gypsy. So they can actually speak gypsy and we love like Romani gypsy music. And yeah, so I've got uncles in Serbia who like, they're musicians and they they sing in Gypsy. It's amazing. It's so yeah. cool. Oh, you mm-hmm. definitely need to talk about that more. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Very last question. What's your favorite quote? So I was, this is the only question that I looked at on the questions that you sent me because I generally don't like to just, I just go off the cuff normally, but I wanted to give you a good one. So when I was working at Cosmo, my editor, Bronwyn McCann, was counseling me after my really, really big breakup. And she said to me, Denny, in the end, it will all be okay. If it's not okay, it's not the end. I love that one. And I'll never forget it. And she's absolutely right because sometimes life can be so cloudy, such a shitstorm, and you just think, for fuck's sake, give me a break. <laughs> give me a break, Hanny. And then you go, it's okay. It's not the end. It's going to be okay in the end. It's not the end. Just keep oh going. Oh, my gosh. That yeah. is so beautiful and what an amazing way to end. Denny, thank you so much. This has been such a joy. I could talk this to you for hours. This has been the best conversation I've had without a doubt all month. Oh, my gosh. Like, you're a fucking delight and oh, you just ooze empathy and you provide such a safe space to converse and it's like a pleasure to talk to you genuinely. Oh, yeah. you are mm-hmm. so kind. I've mm. loved this so much. And I genuinely believe that we need a reunion on the dance floor that's at gonna, some that's point. Happen. <laughs> Email me your phone number. We'll loop in Khan. We'll make this shit happen. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? It'll be the biggest blowout of all time. I can't wait. Like... I can't wait. It's necessary. <laughs> Thank oh, you so much, my love. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful week. Oh my gosh, I absolutely love how Denny allows us all to explore new language and concepts without feeling judged or uncomfortable and create such a safe place for us to learn. They inspire me so much to continually honour who I really am and block out the noise or pressure that pulls us in all kinds of directions. What an incredible role model and wonderful human being who is such a joy to chat with. I highly recommend you follow their page for daily smiles and inspiration. The dancing videos are incredible. 
And if you enjoyed this, please do share the episode tagging at Style by Denny and us with any takeaways or reflections. It means the world when the neighborhood helps thank our guests for so generously giving us their time. Next up is our third anniversary Q&A episode with some of your voices featuring recording your own questions that I'm so thrilled about. And the questions have been such a good reflection starter. So I cannot wait to share that episode with you next week. I hope you're all having a wonderful week and a seizing your yay.